Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from this love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What's up, Ivanhoe? It's been a while. Um, Todd has asked me to land this plane that we've been flying for the last month. Um, I don't know about you, but when Todd suggested the idea of our sermon series, um, I was disinclined to disturb the hornet's nest that it is. Um, be that as it may, standing in front of God's people purporting to have a message on his behalf is in quite a few ways arrogant. The only way that anyone can effectively speak on behalf of God, at least in my experience, is if they find the humility to lose themselves in his greatness, become dwarfed, if you will, by his majesty, and cancelled by his amazing and incomprehensible love. We live in a society that has educated us to be not only the best that we can be, but better than everyone else. Our accomplishments and achievements are generally driven and measured by how they compare to the accomplishments and achievements of our colleagues and neighbors. Find an edge, we are taught. Capitalize on their weaknesses, we admonish. You have no friends in this race. Shake hands after. But when you are in the pool, you let them eat your bubbles. I know this as a swim father of two competitive swimmers. I've counseled them this way many times. Now, don't get me wrong. I agree. Mediocrity is not a goal, and being average suggests you haven't tried. Some goals require our sweat, blood, and tears. But at what price and at whose expense? I've had the opportunity to speak to you like this a few times with mixed reviews. Um, I guess one of the, the good things about being amongst families is that you're comfortable telling me whatever you, whatever's on your mind. Three of those sermons demonstrate the spectrum of responses. My Louis Vuitton love. The women loved that sermon. The men, eh, not so much. In fact, a few weeks ago, a young lady asked, when are you doing my Louis Vuitton love too? I don't think there will be a Louis Vuitton too, but you'll be pleased to know that I've considered the topic my Prada desire. <laughs> then there was the giants come, came tumbling down. Man, did I get some flack for that sermon. 
I was chastised for expressing my belief that we had gotten the story of David and Goliath completely wrong, at least according to Malcolm Gladwell. I still think he got it right. And then there was, I am a murderer. Some of you took issue with the suggestion that we murder each other and crucify Christ afresh each time we utter an unkind word to someone or mistreat or abuse those we claim to love. I'll rest on the biblical record for that one. I don't work for the conference, so I'm free to allow the Spirit to truly move me. But all just aside, I thank God for trust for Todd. I thank God and Todd for trusting me with this sacred space. It comes with a huge responsibility. God has no voice but ours, and so I am deeply humbled that today He has chosen me to speak to you, and I pray that while it will be my voice that you hear, it will be His words that you listen to. I think I have struggled with this topic, though, the most. I'm still struggling with it. And you should know that I'm not convinced that I've gotten it right. But there are a few things that I've been inspired to talk about, so please be patient with my truth. Shall we pray? Father, we ask that you be the light in our darkness so that we may see clearly, despite the Christians we consider ourselves to be, where within us lies the evil that will separate us from the perfection of your truth and love. Disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last month, Todd has taken us on a bold and uncomfortable journey a necessary and overdue journey that began some 600 years ago when an evil far greater than many things that have threatened the happiness, prosperity, success, potential, and dare I say, very existence of mankind was birthed. Like Ibram Kendi, I believe that apart from the threat of nuclear warfare and global warming, nothing has impacted the future of American culture quite like racism. It has ravaged cultures, destroyed entire economies, lynched, terrorized, imprisoned, and murdered hundreds of thousands of men and women and children simply because of their appearance or identity. That this disease, this cancer called racism, has inhabited me for much of my life disturbs me profoundly. Now, to me and many of my black brothers and sisters, Christian and otherwise, this is quite the awakening. The revelation that is Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, has not only underscored and reinforced the responsibility that white people must embrace for having enslaved, murdered, and terrorized black and brown people with their racist policies and systems for hundreds of years, but it also exposes the black defense behind which I and other black peoples have hidden, the false belief that black and brown people are incapable of racism because we lack the requisite power to be so. Meanwhile, we laugh at jokes among ourselves and about ourselves, find distinctions to separate us from ourselves, 
and among ourselves, and without ire or protest, find humor in stereotypes and mischaracterizations that by design and proof persist in an advancing racist policies that defined the slave trade hundreds of years ago. For the white man and woman, our curse is our dark skin and tightly knitted hair, our broad noses, full meaty lips, her broad hips and curvy design, the cadence in our speech, the lexicon we marry to the beat to which we speak. Because my music is informed by my history, a history written by those who do not look like me, but allows me to sing my way out of misery, poverty, and violence, and dance my way to my own version of equality, equity, and freedom, and announce my praise to God with arm-lifting, feet-shifting, and audible amens and hallelujahs, should that make me less, any less sophisticated, less intelligent, inferior to or less deserving than those who choose to pronounce their words without a tune and securely belt their pants above their waist and lace their shoes tightly, bake their skin under our island suns, perm their hair straight to our enviable curl and refuse to move, fighting against the call of the rhythm, stubbornly choosing to sit stoically censoring a heart that desperately wants to twerk and jig and jive with praise because it would not be appreciated by the imaginary blonde and pale Jesus of Nazareth who taught our white-bearded preacher corrected us about last week. Where's Todd? The struggle is real. What should it matter if my hair is straight or kinky? I see no better because they are blue. A, new, a nose has no lesser sense of smell because of its size. Does not our skin clothe our bodies just as well, regardless of its shade or hue? Will fuller lips speak any less clearer? And why should love, true love, be measured by who I am and choose to love? My brothers and sisters of one mother, Eve, and one father, Adam, the blood that runs through each of us is the same. Our hearts beat with the same count, our vitals measured with the same metric. We walk and talk and think and sleep and eat and sing with the same biophysical mechanics. We are differently the same. I recently had the fortune of looking a murderer in the eyes. I will explain. I met him at the Attica Maximum Correctional Facility where he calls home. As we drove toward the fortress that it is, my anxiety increased with every heartbeat. It was a brisk and clear-skied October morning, but I felt warm. The giant towering thick whitewashed walls appeared insurmountable. I had months to prepare for this visit, but I still felt unprepared. My mother would always remark that no one could contemplate the events of the cross and remain unchanged. Similarly, I knew that I was not going to leave Attica the same person or professional that I was before I entered. Discomfort is an essential part of change. Transformation comes with even greater discomfort and even pain. Consider the butterfly. 
She does not emerge from the chrysalis with beauty in her wings and the gift of flight without experiencing a transformational anguish and death of the caterpillar she once was. The oyster must endure the irritation of sand or gravel to achieve the pricelessness of her pearl. The grand piano must bear the strain of 11 tons of pressure to arrive at its tuning, but oh, how sweet the music. My friends, nay, my brothers and sisters, black, white, yellow, gay, straight, and in between, so the Christian cannot expect to experience the Edenic beauty of heaven without experiencing her own cross and death to self. Change must come, but change comes with a cost. We got out of the van and walked towards the large doors to the entrance. Guards with high-powered shotguns were perched on top of the walls. Oddly, I didn't feel any safer. We entered the main door. There were five white corrections officers. Their expressions beguiled their displeasure with our arrival. We were the uninvited guests. I was invited by CANI, the Correctional Association of New York, a not-for-profit organization authorized by the governor to monitor and report on prisons throughout the state. I work in the criminal justice system. Needless to say, they are not friends of the Department of Corrections. Their mission is to keep these castles of incarceration in humane and inhabitable condition. Security began the minute we entered the main door. Consider inspection, airport inspection, on steroids. No phones, no electronics. Our wrists were marked with an infrared stamp before we took off our shoes, belts, and jackets. Then we were escorted to a narrow area, one person at a time, and escorted through a magnometer. After which, we were escorted to another officer who waved the precautionary wand over our bodies. As we walked through the halls of the prison with our escorts, it felt as if a thousand gates were opened and locked behind us with every hundred yards of steps we took. It wasn't long before it began to dawn on me how imprisoned I was. And as I got deeper into the bowels of what felt like hell, I felt increasingly cocooned with my only sanity being the assurance that I, unlike the 1,700 residents, would be leaving at the end of the day. I had rejected the idea of my participation being limited to observation alone. I wasn't there as a tourist or a spectator. If I had wanted to observe life behind cages, I would have gone to the Bronx Zoo. The director of Canny informed us that we were going to be split up into groups. She had selected me to visit the special housing unit, the SHU, also called the box or the hole for obvious reasons. This is where the residents, because I refuse to call them inmates, already serving significant state time are held for acts of violence or certain prison regulation infractions. The cages are smaller, hotter, and smeller, smellier than the general cell. 
It was already noisy when I arrived and became noisier as the residents learned of my presence, each of them calling me to talk. One man whistled at me. I tried to feel flattered. My heart raced and my mind shivered as I considered the violence represented in the cells. I knew it would be uncomfortable. I wanted it to be uncomfortable, to inspire the change that I was hoping for. I approached the first cell, cautiously, my heart still sprinting. A very large black man lay in his shorts on a small cot positioned against the wall of his small cell. There wasn't much more, a seatless toilet, chair and desk. The white guard stood a few feet away from me, his legs spread widely apart, and the ubiquitous stick in his right hand, the head of which he slapped repeatedly into his left palm as if at the ready. I looked again at the body asleep with long dreadlocks draped around his neck like a woolen scarf. I glanced at the guard again in time to notice the subtle smirk on his face, as if daring me to awaken the giant bear in the cage. Maybe I shouldn't talk. Maybe I shouldn't disturb him, I thought to myself. After all, there were so many others shouting out who were awake, begging me to talk to them. I swallowed hard and mustered the courage to knock on the plexiglass that added another layer of separation to the thick bars. The giant stirred and turned annoyingly in my direction. I very, very politely apologized and for disturbing him and introduced myself as quickly as I could. His face relaxed when he saw me, then he rose from his bed, the tattoos dancing with the muscles on his arms and chiseled back. I asked if he wanted to talk. He thought for a moment and stroked his bearded face quizzically, then smiled and took a step toward the glass. I shuffled backwards slightly. The bars and glass made me feel no more secure. I looked up at him and we began to talk. I commented on how immaculately neat his cell was compared to the others. His bed was made with sheets tightly hugging his mattress like a military barracks. His books were thoughtfully arranged on top of his desk where a Bible lay opened. The walls on his cell were covered with pencil portraits of celebrities and fictitious heroines and heroes, each demonstrating an incredible talent that the world beyond that cell would never see. He was 27 years old, serving an 80-year sentence. He spoke about his family and how he missed them, that they had stopped coming to see him a few years ago because his mother was getting tired of having to take the 12-hour bus ride from Brooklyn. He had stopped asking them to visit because of the unfair inconvenience it caused her, and she was getting old and complained about pain. He spoke about a world he escaped to. It was perfectly neat. A world inhabited by his art, his Bible and books about love. He explained that his extraordinary neatness helped him keep his sanity and his mind organized, thoughtful and hopeful, 
and deal with the reality that he may never see the world beyond his fortress home. For now, he had to rely on his memory if he wanted to experience the smell of perfume on his girlfriend's neck, the taste of a Burger King burger, or the touch of his mother's embrace. He was articulate, intelligent, patient, with my inquisition, and deeply spiritual. His ambitions were realistic and his needs reasonable for a free man. There was very little that distinguished him from me. We both had eyes, a nose and a mouth. Fleecy hair and our skin shared a similar shade. As he spoke, my fear melted away. His voice was gentle. My mind relaxed, the bars disappeared, and I forgot that he had done something really bad that had put him in a really bad place for an eternity. That day, I spoke to 15 men in the shoe, and over the 40 residents, over the two days. Four of them were white. I can still see most of their faces. They looked like me, human. The only difference was our biographies. That night, I lay on my hotel bed, pleading with sleep to take me to a safe place far away from the intense images, smells, stories of regret, hurt, pain, separation and violence that I had witnessed earlier. I couldn't avoid acknowledging that my attitude, now having, having read Kendi's book, though implicit, of arrogance and superiority, was as far from anti-racist as heaven is from hell. I had entered that prison with preconceived ideas and judgments about the men I was going to meet, without knowing anything about them other than that they had done something bad according to the law, and in some cases, very bad by any societal standard. But what I didn't expect was that I discovered, but what I discovered once they were isolated and stripped from the environment and people and acts that got them there. They were men and boys just like me, people just like you with the same needs, desires, wishes, vulnerabilities and insecurities, ambitions and abilities that had they been given a chance or an opportunity would have chosen to be a different version of themselves. I was so wrong. I, like many of you, have found consolation in a proud belief that we are not racist. After all, I am a Christian. Not just any Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, the chosen, the 144,000 baby. So at least for me, herein lies the battle, the one I am fighting and will be for years to come. Frankly, I am embarrassed that it took Ibram Kendi's book to inform me that I have been practicing a delusional model of Christianity, one that allowed me 
as we have heard so eloquently from Todd, Kathleen, and Saba over the last few weeks, to live blindly to the reality that it is not enough not to be a racist. In fact, that option is not available to us because it does not exist. And it is at the level of that type of complacency that is inherent in that position that gives us the license to do nothing. And nothing doesn't account for anything. I am either a racist or an anti-racist. So if I'm comfortable with standing on the sidelines, pointing out the bigotry, phobias, biases, and racism of others, while engaging in conduct, implicit or otherwise, that promotes a thought, an action, or a lack thereof, that is motivated by the idea that another person belongs to a race or class of people considered less than or inferior to who I am, then the undeniable truth is that I am guilty of this abominable sin and equally a part of the cancer as are those who claim to be the least racist person in the world. I don't know about you, but I do not want to be tomorrow the person I am today. I want to be a better version of who I am now. I don't want to make the slightest contribution, as innocuous as it might seem, in flippancy, jest or otherwise, to the cancer that racism as a national institution is. So where does that leave me? Where does that leave you? Well, I need help from a higher authority because I acknowledge I cannot do this on my own. I'm going to slip up again. I need help from he who gave his life so that I may have life. The whosoever God of John 3, verse 16. That whosoever means every single person within the hearing of my voice, every single person whoever inhabits this earth, no matter your phenotype, culture, race, gender, or sexuality. That God in whom, in Samuel 16, verse 7, saw no value in outward appearances, but rather the sincerity of the heart. Isn't it beautiful that the creator of all still finds beauty and purpose in us, despite our unworthiness? A few weeks ago, while making my way through Grand Central Station, I was taught an erasable lesson in anti-racism. I had just walked through the turnstile and was making my way to the number four train, when through the crowd of hurrying people, I noticed a person stooping beside a cardboard sign. It read, Transgender and homeless, please help. She was white and surrounded by what was obviously all her personal belongings compacted in, a large black, compacted in large black bags and a cart. I reached into my pocket to retrieve the dollar I usually keep accessible for moments like this. It makes me feel good. It wasn't there, but I was in a rush to get home, so God forbid that I would consider the labor it would take for me to first pause, then unzip my bag, then remove my wallet, then unzip the wallet to remove a single dollar. Now, let's not forget that I would then have to 
zip the wallet closed, return it to the bag, and then zip my bag closed all in a few nanoseconds. And so, like that holy Samaritan about God's business who Kathleen spoke about, I continued my focus on me and my business of getting home to my warm apartment where a warm, sumptuous meal and bed awaited me. That is when I saw her dividing the morsels of food that someone had just left for her. She then walked over to where a homeless black man was lying on the cold ground and without the slightest hesitation or prompting, handed him the portion of all the food she had. That, Advent Hope, is an image of love that will play over and over in my mind for the rest of my life. If she, in her wounded condition, could find love to share all that she had, not knowing if more were to come, with someone who didn't look like her, then certainly I in my health and fortune can find it with me, within me to love all people without judgment. Fleecy locks and black complexion cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in blacks and whites the same. My brothers and sisters of Advent Hope, this very difficult and important series of sermons will end today. But we can admit right now that we have been practicing the wrong kind of love and the false kind of Christianity and commit that with God's grace and help to be an anti-racist for Christ and for his kingdom. This is my prayer for our call to action in the anti-racist name of Jesus. Amen.